First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. The Gambinos, no crime family in America, has been as powerful, as wealthy, or as treacherous. He put a member of the Gambino mob in prison, then convicted one of the main men behind the Oklahoma City bombing. The jury has sent word that they do have a verdict. Count one, guilty. Terry Nichols is guilty. So how did Jeffrey Mearns go from one of the nation's top trial lawyers to the man in charge at a major Indiana university? President Mearns, it gives me great pleasure to affirm your welcome to Ball State University and declare officially that you are now the 17th president of Ball State University. Congratulations. You know you're a Ball State Cardinal when you're one of us. We are Ball State University. We fly. Jeffrey Mearns, the wind beneath the wings at Ball State, a guy who runs like the wind, broke a record held by legendary marathoner Frank Shorter, qualified for the 84 Olympic trials. High-powered prosecutor, dynamic runner, high school teacher, one of nine kids, and now blazing a trail in higher education. Get to know Ball State University President Jeff Mearns on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Jeffrey Mearns' journey to Muncie, Indiana to lead Ball State University is anything but typical. He was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, one of nine kids, spent his high school years in the Cleveland suburb of Shaker Heights, where Mearns' mom served as mayor. He graduated with an English degree from Yale and then went on to teach high school English in New Jersey. Mearns eventually earned a law degree and wound up working some very high-profile cases. He helped send Gambino crime family member Sammy the Bull Gravano to jail and was on the prosecution team that sent Terry Nichols to prison for his role in the Oklahoma City bombing. After 15 years practicing law, Mearns entered the world of higher education. He was named Ball State's 17th president in 2017, and I am very happy to have Jeff Mearns join me on the podcast this week. President Mearns, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, you know, as we're doing a little research for the podcast, you're coming up on five years, is that right? That's correct. It'll be five years in the middle of May. That is amazing. I mean, I remember very clearly when you uh, were named president. I know you came on the show. It doesn't seem like it's been five years. What does it seem like to you? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so there's some days when it seems, you know, with COVID years, you can't tell whether that makes your lifespan longer or shorter, but uh, I, I still have that same level of enthusiasm and uh, really the same level of excitement and optimism about the future of our university and the future of the communities that we serve here in East Central Indiana. Yeah. How, tell me about uh, the pandemic. Obviously, extremely challenging times uh, to be a university president, to be sure. Do you think... Seem like you're on the downside of the the pandemic now, and uh, maybe the worst is behind us. 
Yeah, I, I do. And, and clearly on our campus, the numbers have dropped significantly over the last month or so. And like everyone else, we've faced a couple of waves and uh, feel that uh, our faculty, staff and our students really manage their way through it. You know, it's about the two year anniversary when we had to send everyone on, in remote instruction back in March of 2020. What to me is a is a remarkable statistic that from March of 2020 through December of 2021, we conferred 10,000 degrees here at Ball State. That is, we were able to continue through the hard work of our faculty, the dedication of our staff and the discipline and persistence of our students. They were able to complete their education and we have now thousands of students still along the pipeline. So I think that statistic is a reflection of how well we've managed uh, this extraordinary crisis. Jeff, it had to have tested your every bit of your leadership abilities, uh, you know, to, to to work through this. How would you describe, were there any moments that you, you know, you, you thought, man, I don't know how we're going to get through this? Well, we there were times when I was wondering whether we'd be able to sustain on-campus instruction, but I'll tell you a little anecdote. You know, this was probably, you know, late April of 2020, so we were six, eight weeks into it. None of us knew how long it was going to be, and a uh, I had a rare Sunday afternoon in the spring and I was walking my dog with my wife, Jennifer, you know, and I was kind of lamenting kind of as your question suggests. And I was, I said to her, you know, I'm not sure I really signed up for this. Right. Uh, and Jennifer, who's always the one who brings me back to ground, reminded me that only a few months earlier in January, uh, in January 2020, the board had extended my contract for several years. So she said, well, you know, literally, actually, you did sign up for this. <laughs> right. And I said, well, that's not quite what I meant. And uh, what she said, which was a great reminder, is, you know, this is where this is a test of leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. When you sign up uh, in a position like this, you sign up for the for the good times and the celebrations and you sign up for the challenges as well. And I've been so fortunate, Gary, because I had a team around me on the, the leadership team. And that includes our deans and department chairs, our vice presidents, every one of them stepped up in extraordinary ways. And if I can tell you one other story, just to illustrate what I mean. In uh, August, when we returned to classes in August of, of 2020, you know, the pandemic was still kicking around pretty badly. And the first week or two of classes, we had an extraordinary spike in new infections among our students. And we were very close to having to do what uh, our colleagues did at Notre Dame, to shut down in-person instruction for a while. We decided to see if we could get our arms around the infections on our campus. And so we mobilized testing and contact tracing, and we needed to set up an auxiliary testing site at our football stadium. And we needed somebody to manage that, uh, that auxiliary facility. And so I was, we were in a daily meeting with the leadership team, and I looked around the table. I said, who can take this on? And the person who stepped up was Beth Getz, our athletics director. So here's our director of intercollegiate athletics who said to us, look, I know all of you are busy. We're in a pause in, you know, in competitive sports rights now. I can take this on. And so our athletic director spent 16 hours a day for nearly two weeks running our testing center that helped us get our arms around it. I mean, just one example of hundreds of stories that I could tell you about people who went above and beyond beyond what was in their job description. And so we managed through it because of these extraordinary people. And I'm so yeah. fortunate to have, to be a part of that team. Yeah, that is a great story. And Beth Getz certainly uh, 
uh, is uh, making her mark as a, an athletic director there at Ball State, uh, far beyond Muncie. A lot of people recognizing uh, her ability there. You know, you talk about, uh, you know, the good times and the bad times. Being a president of Ball State University, you get to do some fun stuff, especially with guys like Dave Letterman. What's it, what's it been like to get to know David Letterman? Because obviously he's such, been such a wonderful benefactor for Ball State, but, but has supported the university in so many ways. And I know you've done some, some cool events with him. Yeah, he's, he's been a remarkable and fun graduate to have back on our campus. He came back here, as you may recall, with Peyton Manning in the fall of 2020 to record an episode of Peyton's Places, uh, Peyton Manning's fun uh, take on football and got our players involved in that show. Great way to showcase it. He was on campus just a, a few weeks ago to announce a new program with our eSports program. You know, the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan racing team uh, is investing in our new eSports program and providing scholarships. And what's interesting about him when he's on campus, Gary, He's always very polite and is willing to spend a few minutes with me. He spends his time on our campus with our students. He comes back to be with them. And again, I'll tell you one story. You know, we were involved. We had to keep uh, the number of people who were in the esports venue under control. And there were about three or four dozen students out in the hallway. And I went out to speak with them and they said, hey, is there any chance that you could get David Letterman to come out, take a group photo with us? So I said, well, let me go see. So I went back inside and I said to him, David, you know, there's a group of students. So not only did he say yes, he walked out there and he looked at the crowd. He said, look, we can't do a group photo in this hallway. Let's do them one at a time. Wow. And he spent about 45 minutes talking to each one of these students and taking a selfie with them. That's the kind of committed graduate he is, that he wants to be here for our students. And we're so fortunate to have him whenever he's on campus. It's great to have him here. That is, that is a great story. Okay, so nearly five years on the job now. I mean, this is an unfair question. I was going to say, you know, how would you describe your first five years in one word? But give me a phrase. Is there a phrase or a descriptor that you would kind of use to encapsulate what these first five years on the Muncie campus have been like for you? So for me, I would say it's been very gratifying. I Mm -hmm. I knew uh, when I was coming here that it was a special opportunity for me. Uh, But the rewards that I've received from seeing the successes and the contributions of our faculty, staff, our benefactors, uh, I knew there was a lot of potential for increased impact, increased impact on the lives of our students and and the lives and careers of our graduates and on the communities that we serve. But I, I underestimated how much momentum and how much impact that we could generate by working together. So it's been it's been rewarding and and truly gratifying. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, in terms of accomplishments and, and, you know, there'd be several categories among them, just the physical presence uh, of the campus. Talk about the change that you've seen uh, in Shepherd there from uh, physical changes on the campus. So over the last five years and then continuing over the next two or three, we will have completed somewhere around 400 to 500 million dollars of new construction and renovated construction. So we've built a new uh, health professions building and a new foundational sciences building, grateful to our uh, elected officials in the General Assembly and to Governor Holcomb for providing the capital for those projects. We've also been able to invest our new resource, our own resources in two new residence halls and a new dining hall that will complete 
the replacement of the La Follette Hall complex, which is the, was the largest complex. Um, we have a new multicultural center that we've located in the center of campus. We're now constructing a new outdoor performance amphitheater with the extraordinary generosity of one of our graduates, Charlie Brown. Uh, we're building a, a pathway from the village, the commercial district, just to the south of our campus, through the heart of our campus. And we're completing the, the renovation of, uh, of the Cooper Science Building. And then, of course, our new indoor practice facility. So we've been fortunate with the support of the General Assembly. We've been fortunate uh, in the resources that we have been able to generate internally and extraordinarily fortunate to have the support uh, of our alumni and benefactors who've made con financial contributions that have enabled us to make these investments in our campus. Well, what's the biggest challenge? Uh, I know there are many, uh, but uh, if you had to narrow it down in terms of being a university president today, and certainly all institutions are, are trying to get, you know, attract students and do things that make make their programming, their campus, all of those things more attractive. You mentioned the esports, and I thought that was an interesting uh, announcement you had a few weeks ago. Are all those things aimed at, you know, essentially being a, a great attractor of, uh, of of students? Yeah, so probably the, the biggest challenge from my position is a university has so many constituencies, right? You've got your students, you've got your faculty, you've got your staff, you've got your alumni, you've got elected officials, community leaders, right? And those different constituencies have different perspectives about where the university should be going. And then even within each constituency, right, they don't, there isn't a unanimous view. So one of the most important responsibilities I have is to work with all of those constituencies to see if we can harmonize their views into a single plan, single strategic plan. And when that happens, and I think we're in that place now, You've got everyone in the boat rowing in the same direction with the same level of passion and enthusiasm. So that turns that challenge into something that's very rewarding. That's probably the, the biggest challenge. And then the, the other challenge now on, a, on, a, on maybe a less macro level is um, there is increasing skepticism about the value of higher education. And one of my important responsibilities is to do a better job of communicating with prospective students, with their families, with our community leaders and our elected mm -hmm. officials, that investing in higher education, either personally or through state resources, produces and will continue yep. to yep. produce great return on investment. What you know, when you I remember when you arrived uh, in uh, in Muncie, you you know you talked about the importance of connecting with community, connecting with Muncie, connecting with East Central Indiana. And, and, you know, like a, I, this is my opinion, you know, like a lot of places, there's not, I don't think, been a great previously relationship town and gown type thing in, in Muncie with Ball State. And it, you could you could say the same thing about other institutions. How would you gauge your success at doing that, at connecting uh, with East Central Indiana to help that that economy move forward? Well, I would start first with Gary that that for our institution, I first of all, I believe public universities have a community engagement mission, but it is particularly pronounced and true for Ball State. As you know, the history of this, uh, of our institution traces back to a thriving manufacturing community who made an investment through the Ball Brothers and others to create our institution. And now when our community is facing some challenge, challenges, it's incumbent upon us 
to reinvest in the community. So we feel it's both a professional responsibility as well as a moral obligation. So we've done a variety of things, some big and small. We're much more actively involved in the United Way and, and supporting it both financially and through the United Way Day of Action. Of course, we're, uh, we've taken on this partnership with the Muncie Community Schools, probably the most visible and the most ambitious community engagement project um, that certainly our university has uh, undertaken and happy to talk a little bit more about that. But it, again, it, it flows from what's in our institutional interest as well as what our, what our community engagement mission is all about. Yeah. And I think the opportunity, because I know there was a big announcement just this week as we're taping uh, this podcast uh, with the uh, the vertical farming uh, operation out of Minnesota, making a huge investment, I think $70 million when I had 120 jobs for some really high tech uh, kinds of things. It would seem to me the ball state uh, can be that crown, in a sense, a crown jewel in terms of an asset uh, as Muncie and East Central Indiana go, go after investment. That's right. And we have, you know, they often refer to a university like ours as an anchor institution, which I think is, I understand the terminology, but that sounds like in a time of dynamic change, you don't want to be an anchor. <laughs> right. You want to be a you want to be a catalytic agent. And so we're doing that with the Muncie Community Schools. We're doing that with IU Ball Memorial Hospital and the East Central region of of IU Health. We want to do that to support population health as well as economic development. We are the arts and culture hub. For mm-hmm. East Central Indiana, we're proud and uh, of that mission as well. So we, as I say, we want to be perceived and welcomed as a catalytic agent here in East Central Indiana. Um, you, you talk about your, uh, you know, stepping in with uh, with Muncie Community Schools and in, in that that whole uh, issue, which was controversial. I mean, you had supporters certainly. I think a lot in the business community, but others didn't think it was such a great idea. Talk about that whole process uh, uh, as you reflect on it. So that, that, you know, I, my appointment was announced in January of 2017, and I uh, started work here in May of 2017. In that intervening period was when the state began its takeover of the Muncie Community Schools because of the longstanding systemic challenges. And so it was in the fall of 2017 when we were contacted um, about the possibility of investing more in the Muncie Community Schools. And we took that on that responsibility to partner uh, with the Muncie Community Schools for a variety of reasons. One is, you know, we're a teacher's college. And, yeah. and frankly, it's it was a bit of an embarrassment that here we are, one of the premier teacher's colleges, not just in the state, but in, in the Midwest, maybe in the country. Yep. And yep. yet the local public school system was struggling. That's not right. And then, so that was really the professional responsibility. We also know, we all know that a strong public school system is what makes a vibrant community, where families want to move and raise their children. So it was in our institutional interest also to support it. But as I said uh, earlier, I felt a moral obligation. And I'll tell you just one quick story, if I may. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have this beautiful Emmons uh, auditorium on our campus. It was built, uh, President John Emmons, one of my predecessors, raised both state resources as well as philanthropy to build that auditorium. And when I was reading about the history of Ball State in the fall of 2017, I read a story. He he went out and raised money from the Ball Brothers Foundations and from businesses and wealthy members of the community. But President Emmons also went out to the factories on the south side of Muncie and asked the people on the front line of those factories to make payroll deductions 
nickels, dimes, and quarters from their paychecks to support the fundraising campaign that produced Emmons Auditorium. And so it occurred to me when I read that story that the children in the Muncie Community Schools today, those are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those women and men who made those contributions 50 or 60 years ago. We have a moral obligation to repay those extraordinary contributions to support the education of every child here in Muncie, Indiana. Great story. And we have much more ahead with Ball State University President uh, Jeff Mearns. You're going to enjoy this because this is an interesting guy. Uh, I learned a lot in doing research uh, on uh, on uh, President Mearns, and we're going to dive into that when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. Stay with us. First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Ball State University President Jeff Mearns. And uh, Jeff, uh, so much we can talk about. I'm looking forward to this, the second uh, part of our podcast this week, because you have quite an interesting uh, background. Take us all the way back to, to childhood. So you were born, actually, in Charlottesville, Virginia, right? That's correct. Uh, my father, yes, I was born in Charlottesville, and my father was on the law faculty at the University of Virginia. Very good. So ultimately, you moved to Ohio. Tell me about the move and, and when that happened. And that's, I think, where you spent most of your childhood, right? Correct. My, we moved throughout the Midwest. We moved from uh, Charlottesville briefly to New York and then to Chicago, to Evanston, Illinois, and then to Cincinnati, where my father was dean of the law school at Cincinnati. And then wow. they ultimately settled um, with, with him working at uh, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And we were living in Shaker Heights, a, a suburb just to the east of Cleveland. Yeah. Okay. Now, a couple of things on that. One, you are part of a big family, one of nine children, right? What was growing up like for Jeff Mearns in a family with nine kids, eight, eight brothers and sisters? Yeah. So I was the fifth of nine, right in the middle. I had one brother. He was the oldest. And then I had three older sisters and four younger sisters. So <laughs> I grew up in a, in a household that was an extension of a family with a long history of strong, smart women. Uh -huh. And uh, I've learned uh, in that environment how to uh, how to keep my mouth shut at times, and and uh, <laughs> and also how to how to navigate uh, competing interests around the dinner table. Let's say leave it that way. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, and you talk about strong thinking women, uh, uh, women in leadership. Your mom, I found this interesting, was the first mayor of Shaker Heights, Ohio, right? That's right. My mother, after she raised the nine kids, while my youngest sister was still going through elementary school, she served on the Shaker Heights City Council for 10 years and then uh, ran successfully for two terms as the mayor of Shaker Heights, the first woman and first full-time mayor of that city. Well, so how would you describe Jeff Mearns, the high school uh, student? You were an athlete, right? I, obviously, you were, uh, I am very confident, uh, very academically uh, successful, but you were also an athlete. 
Yeah, I spent, uh, I, I was a decent student and a pretty good runner. So I was, a, I was an athlete uh, growing up in middle school, high school, all through college, and then competed uh, as a distance runner, even for several years after I graduated from college. So distance running, competitive athletics was, is really kind of a part of, of who I am. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, your college because you went to Yale. Was that, uh, did, did you seriously look at other places? Why, why Yale? So I, I only applied to three institutions. Uh, I applied to Yale, Virginia, and Duke. Actually, my first choice was to go to the University of Virginia, and, and they had offered me a scholarship to compete there, fine institution. Uh, but my father had other, uh, other expectations for me, and we had a long conversation late one night and ultimately <clears throat> made the right decision to attend Yale. It was a great experience for me, challenging academically, yep. uh, great uh -huh. opportunity athletically. Well, talk about the athletics because you brought do a little research here. You broke Frank Shorter's indoor two mile record when you were a freshman at Yale. Yes, I broke his freshman record, and frankly, he was my idol. I got into distance running uh, by watching wow. Frank Shorter win the gold medal in the Olympics in 1972. I can remember sitting in my TV family room, TV room in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I turned to my father and. I said, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to represent the United States in the Olympics, in the marathon. And, you know, throughout the years, my father, who was a very successful athlete himself, said, you know, that, well, if that's your dream, here's the work that's required to try to get there. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the Olympics. You were on a path. You could have, you could have done that because you qualified for the Olympic trials, right? For the 84 Olympic trials. I did. I qualified for the 84 Olympic trials in the marathon. And then unfortunately, as we know with sports, you've got some ups yeah. and you've got some, some lows about uh, five weeks before the race. It was, it was over Memorial day weekend of 1984, about five, six weeks before the race, I was diagnosed with a stress fracture. So instead wow. of competing in the Olympic trials, I watched it in my apartment on a little black and white TV set. Uh, as oh. you can imagine, not the best day in my life. Yeah, well, how, how'd you deal with that? How, you know, people, you know, I, I always firmly believe that athletics are, uh, you know, the lows and the defeats and the tough times teach you as much, if not more than, than the victories and the, in the wins. How, how did you deal with that? Well, um, as I say, it was difficult. It was emotional because it was something that I'd been thinking about planning for working for, for 12 years since I was a, you know, since I was a 12 or 13 year old kid. So after the rehabilitation, you know, my, my father, who was a great role model, said, you know, you've got two choices. You can either give up or keep trying. And mm -hmm. I kept trying, but never got to that same level. But it learned, as you said just a moment ago, you learn lessons from that. The lesson I learned there is uh, obviously to compete at that level, you have to work very hard, but you also have to understand when to dial it back. And I, you know, my enthusiasm and my commitment took me to the place where I suffered a stress fracture. So I was was trying to find that optimal space. And so I learned to, to work hard, but also to recognize that there's sometimes, sometimes you got to take your foot off the gas too. Yeah. So you were an English major at Yale and then got into teaching, I think, right? Uh, upon graduation. That's correct. So while at this time when I was training and competing, I was teaching at a, a private prep school about uh, an hour due west of New York City. A uh, school is called Del Barton in Morristown, New Jersey. And it was a great opportunity for me to to, uh, to professionally, but also gave me the opportunity. The school gave me a lot of support to continue to, to train. 
how uh, your your dad uh, obviously was in law, so that was a natural path. You 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 got your law degree at Virginia. I did. I then went off to the University of Virginia, where he had had, had gone to law school. Got my law degree uh, there. Had the good fortune of getting into UVA law school. So uh, this is where it gets really interesting to me. Uh, you got your law degree, and uh, you went to work uh, as a prosecutor. Actually, worked in the Justice Department, right in New York. Yes, I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office as part of the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn, Queens, uh, Staten Island, and all of Long Island, and was there for about six years. Well, while you were there, you were involved in prosecuting the mob, right? Tell us about that. I mean, some of these, that had to have been an unbelievable experience. It, it was a it was a great experience on every level, and uh, I'll spare you the long story. But the Justice Department, in uh, January of 1990, shortly after I joined the office, restructured how they were prosecuting organized crime and went from a very centralized approach to a decentralized approach, and so gave the U.S. Attorney's Office, including the one that I was in in Brooklyn, much more autonomy and responsibility to prosecute the mob. So, the the chief of that section at the time was a guy named John Gleason. And uh, like the rest of us, we knew just enough to, to be aggressive and proactive. And we had a great run there from about 89 to about 1997 in prosecuting traditional organized crime. And my, most of my cases dealt with the Gambino organized crime family, which is the largest, uh, most uh, dangerous organized yeah. crime family in the, tr- in the history of the United States. What, what was that like? I mean, you know, for, for lack of a better, I mean, we, did you ever get scared? I mean, was what was what, what was that like? I, I was probably too young and naive to be to be scared. Um, it was exciting because because uh, John gave us the authority to be aggressive and to take on cases, to challenge ourselves, and to go to go after. So I tried several cases, uh, racketeering cases, couple of murder cases. I actually prosecuted uh, successfully prosecuted the juror who had taken a bribe in the first federal prosecution of John Gotti, uh, successfully wow. prosecuted, convicted him for, for actually corrupting that jury. So never particularly concerned about our safety because the organized crime in New York, traditional organized crime is a business. And while they're ruthless, they understand there are certain lines that they can't cross. And so never felt particularly concerned for my safety or the safety of my family because they understood that was a bridge too far. So, so now, did you cross paths with with Rudy Giuliani because he was he was obviously you know high profile prosecution of the mob as well? Yeah, Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District in Manhattan, and he had stepped down from that position in I think in the mid to late '80s before I arrived in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. So, never really crossed paths, but certainly knew of him and knew of the work that he and his colleagues had done over in Manhattan in that same area. Yeah. And, and, and prosecuting the mob, one piece of your very interesting law background. Also, Terry Nichols, who involved accomplice, I can't remember the actual technicality, but with the Oklahoma City bombing, you, you prosecuted uh, Nichols, right? Yeah. So I was had the uh, good fortune, the Attorney General, Janet Reno, in uh, 1997, uh, appointed me to assist with the prosecution of the Oklahoma City bombing cases. It was in the middle of the prosecution of Timothy McVeigh. Uh, the two the two of them, McVeigh and Nichols, were the two co-conspirators Co-conspir- that, yeah. uh, that, uh, that assembled and detonated that bomb. So I was appointed to assist with the second case, which, by the way, there's a tie in here to Indiana because the lead prosecutor in the Nichols case was Larry Mackey. Right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Here in Indianapolis and had the good fortune to work with Larry 
one of the most extraordinary, capable, but dedicated uh, lawyers that I've ever worked with. And in my estimation, I've said this in other settings, he is a true unsung American hero for the commitment that he and his family made to the Oklahoma City bombing cases. When you got the call from Janet Reno to get involved with that, that had to be a moment of um, of pride on your part. I mean, had, were you excited? What were your, what were your uh, emotions? Yeah, so I'll tell you the first story. So I was, at that time, I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was the first assistant there and had decided privately that I was going to leave the Justice Department and go into private practice in Cleveland and got a call on a Sunday night from one of the lawyers out in Denver who was prosecuting the case saying they were looking for somebody. There were three attorneys in the first case who were leaving and they were looking for one experienced prosecutors to fill in. And at that time, we had three small children. And so I told the woman who called me, I said, it's just not possible. This was late on a Sunday night. I hung up the phone and my wife asked me, Jennifer said, you know, who was that? What was it about? And I told her and I said, and she said, well, what did you tell her? I said, well, it's just not possible. I can't be considered doing that. I've got three little kids. It's just not possible. And to her credit, uh, Jennifer said, call her back. She said, this is who you are. This is what you do. If the attorney general decides that you're the you're the person best capable of representing the United States in this case, we'll figure the rest of it out. And so within about two or three weeks, I was spending two to three weeks at a time in Denver, Colorado, while my wife was packing up our house in North Carolina, moving our three small children to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. While I was commuting back and forth, Jennifer became pregnant with twins. So she was at home with three kids under the age of six and pregnant with twins when I was living in a hotel in Denver, Colorado. I share that story because there were so many of us who had family members, spouses and others while we were deployed by the Justice Department there who were raising our families and were doing extraordinary service to our country outside of the limelight and focus. And Jennifer and my kids were, were among that very special group. Wow. So how how did you veer off and to get on that uh, university president path from law to to education? So after the after I returned back to Cleveland just in time for Jennifer to have those twins, um, <laughs> I was in private practice in Cleveland for about seven years with a couple of different large national and international law firms in Cleveland. When I was invited to apply to be the dean of the law school at Cleveland State, and had the good fortune to be selected as the dean there. I thought I would do that just as an interlude, maybe do that for four or five years. Uh, I believe in education. I believe in in our justice system, believe in public service. So again, I thought I would do that for five or six years and then get back into law practice, maybe go back to be a prosecutor and went down this path and have been on this path ever since. And I feel incredibly fortunate that the president of Cleveland State at the time, uh, Mike Schwartz, gave me an opportunity. You know, I was what a non-traditional candidate, so to speak. The only time yeah. I had spent in law school was as a student and as an adjunct. And for him to give me the shot to, to be the dean of a law school, he took a big chance on me and I'm grateful that he did. Yeah, well, you're, uh, you had an opportunity to uh, elevate to the president's office at Northern Kentucky University, right? So you served that where you, your service preceded uh, your arrival in Ball, at Ball State. What was, uh, what was the experience at Northern Kentucky like? How did that prepare you? for what you're doing at, uh, at Ball State? Yeah, Northern Kentucky uh, University is a fine institution. It's just across the river from Cincinnati. It's in the Cincinnati metropolitan area. 
Um, it's a relatively young institution, only now about 50 years old, serves a high percentage of commuter students, uh, but has both undergraduate and graduate programs. It was a good opportunity for, for me to appreciate what it was like to, to be a university president and, and why it's both gratifying as well as challenging. Well, as you look uh, kind of out into the, the future, what are your, what's next at Ball State? I mean, you've got uh, so many things going on there um, uh, on campus uh, with academic programs and, and, and others. What, uh, what would you like to accomplish uh, in these next several years uh, at Ball State? So we have a long-term strategic plan uh, that looks out all the way to 2040, but we're in the first phase of that, which is implementing strategic initiatives through 2024. Um, I, I would say three things probably are, are, are significant or noteworthy. One is, and with respect to undergraduate students who are on campus, an increasing investment and focus on experiences. You know, Gary, if we in education are simply delivering content, we will be out of business, right? Our, our students can get all of the content that they need on their cell phone, on their smartphone in five minutes. So our faculty are continuing to make the appropriate transition to not delivering content, but to providing learning experiences where students can apply the content that they have, uh, have received to real world problems. We call it immersive learning, and we do that in many respects. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, I, I just want to jump jump in there, Jeff, because I think Ball State has really been a leader in that that regard, right? The immersive learning, that experiential learning, uh, that's kind of been a to me anyway, seems to be part of the Ball State brand and has been for a while. Yes, and and all credit, not all credit, a lot of credit goes to Joanne Gora for seeing, you know, the the famous line, you know, Wayne Gretzky's famous line: "I don't skate to where the puck is, I right. skate to where it's going." And that right. was Joanne Gora. She saw this, so we're accelerating. Uh, down that pathway. The second thing that we're we're beginning to to invest more in is lifetime learning, non-degree uh, credentials, maybe non-credit courses, certificates, and the like. Things that will help people continue advance professionally or will enrich their lives personally. So we're we're making significant investments in this area of lifetime learning. And then the third piece, as we talked about earlier, is continuing to expand our investments and engagement with the communities that we serve, Muncie, Delaware County, and all of East Central Indiana. So I'd say those are the three areas where you're going to continue to see greater impact here of our university, all focused on how our students contribute in those areas. Well, Jeff Mearns, uh, it has been a real treat uh, to have you on my podcast. Uh, you are an interesting uh, Interesting fellow. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I've enjoyed uh, watching you in a leadership uh, role at Ball State because the university obviously is so important, uh, not only for uh, for Muncie and East Central Indiana, but for the entire state. So thank you for the time. and I, I look forward to, to seeing you soon. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for giving me this opportunity and thanks you for all that you do uh, for the great state of Indiana. All right. Thanks very much, Jeff. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download it and also catch up on all of our previous episodes. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com and click on the subscribe tab. You can also get business news 24-7 while you're there. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gary Dick. We'll see you next time.